Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has backed the creation of an independent regulator in English football to deal with the game's finances and club ownership. This follows former sports minister Tracy Crouch's fan-led review into the governance of football. It now looks likely to become government legislation this year. Do we actually need it? It was contained within the government's levelling up white paper. They clearly see this as part of that key plank. Joining me to discuss this is Kieran Maguire, football finance expert and finance lecturer at the University of Liverpool and the Director General of the Institute for Economic Affairs, Mark Littlewood. Kieran, I'll start with you. Do we actually need a regulator, do you reckon? Well, our history of self-regulation in the game has resulted in what we've seen at Berry Football Club, where the club no longer exists. Macclesfield Town has gone. We've got uh, clubs at war with themselves at Oldham, at Rochdale, many, many northern powerhouse uh, areas. Um, and that's because of a, a light touch approach, uh, which, which we have under self-regulation. Um, and has led to uh, the, the institutions either having little power in which to intervene to protect clubs from unscrupulous owners, or alternatively those owners choosing to, first of all, gamble with the futures of the club. And then when they get bored, uh, put the club into administration or walk away with somebody else there to pick up the tab. So an independent regulator is, is not a cure-all. Uh, we, we've only got to look at other industries where where there are regulators and, and those, those industries are not without flaws themselves. But it would turn down the dial potentially um, in, in terms of making football less attractive to unscrupulous people. Mark, isn't it the case that it's the winds of harsh free market capitalism that have rendered fans completely powerless to bring about change within their clubs and actually the management that might be from dodgy regimes around the world whose values we don't share, for example? That's why we actually need a regulator that can be the fans' voice in these matters. Well, I think on dodgy regimes, Darren, you, you don't need to be focusing wholly in uh, uh, football. I mean, if there are dodgy regimes investing in Britain, that's not a peculiarly football matter. In the case of Roman Abramovich, obviously, we're going after his yachts and his mansions. It's not so that that's up for wider government policy. Just on what Kieran said, for all our belief that sort of football and football clubs are forever teetering on the brink of a financial precipice. Actually, the football industry has been stunningly stable over, over decades, over a century. It's, it's almost impossible to think of any other industry where, if you like, the club names, the brand names from 100 years ago are still the leading brand names now. And yes, sometimes football clubs go bust, but again, incredibly rare. I think only seven football league clubs have gone bust since the end of the Second World War, a tiny number. And five of those have been reformed and rebuilt in some particular way. In the case of, say, Wimbledon, they've made it back into the league. So, uh, and it, it's not really that big business football either. Darren, you were saying at the outset the sort of eye-watering numbers for, that a Chelsea Football Club might be sold for. But actually, despite its fame, despite its profile, Football is rather small business. If you were to combine all 20 league clubs, uh, Premier League clubs, and to sell them as a job lot, that would probably cost you about £16 billion, a bit less than it would cost you just to buy Tesco. So there's small business here, I think, not big business. Uh, Self-regulation never gets everything right, but we shouldn't fall for what economists call the Nirvana fallacy, that if only we had some well-intentioned bureaucrats and politicians peering over the shoulders of everybody involved in football, that everything that goes wrong could somehow be prevented. In fact, I think it would be more likely to make it worse. So, Kieran, football, big business as far as you're concerned, isn't it? It's a bigger business than it was in 1992 when the Premier League formed. Uh, the, the Premier League's increased uh, its, its revenues by around about 2,800% since then. I, I agree with Mark. You've only got to look at the sale of, of Activision to, to Microsoft uh, a couple of months ago to see that actually football is big news. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily big numbers. And, and part of the reason for that is how many other industries do you know where, where you're open 25 days a year as opposed to 360 days a year? 
So, so that's, that's a contributory factor. Um, I think what's unique about football is what you were saying about at the start of this piece, Darren, in the sense that football is a unifying force uh, in terms of it brings everybody together. In, New in Newcastle, you support Newcastle. In Sunderland, you support Sunderland. You set aside your political beliefs and, and your other beliefs in terms of, of culture and, and so on. Um, and, and you unite behind the club, which, which binds you together. Also, as a football fan, as somebody that's been going all my life, and if you talk to any football fan, if you were asked, if you asked them to name the, the 10 most exciting moments of their life, chances are half a dozen of them would involve their football club. And, and, it's, and it's that which needs protection, because football, unfortunately, left to, to where we are at present in terms of ownership and governance and culture, in terms of the, those at the top, has tried to give us uh, has tried to give us Super League has tried to give us Project Big Picture and it was only by the fans, including the fans of, the, of those clubs that would have benefited financially, um, who turned around and said, "Not in my name." We still believe in the romance of the game, unlike the owners. So, Mark, would you argue that actually the European Super League is a good example of what self-regulation can actually achieve, right? Because it didn't happen ultimately. Yeah, this is where I think we've got to work out what's the problem we're trying to solve. Um, uh, Kieran's figure there is quite jaw-dropping that the Premier League has what, grown by 2,800%, did he say, since it was formed? Fantastic. I mean, these have, by and large, been 30 years or so, probably going back all the way to the Italia 90 World Cup, 30 years of a golden era of English football. It's been marvellous. And if you were to look at the European Super League, a disastrously constructed project, I mean, in part because it didn't have the competition of relegation and promotion, it was a closed shop. But things seem to be working here. The fan backlash killed it. Stone dead in, what, 24 or 48 hours. It was absolutely awe-inspiring to see. So I, I think you might have a, a question about fan power not being that strong if the European Super League had gone ahead. But no, a multi, multi, multi-billion pound suggestion to change football forevermore was killed stone dead by a fan backlash. So I think we've got to be very clear here what the problems are that we're trying to solve. And then ask ourselves, do we really think yet another regulator is going to be the means for solving those problems? And my point, Darren, on, on, on football being small business, I mean, certainly if you were to go down the pyramid to the sort of League One, League Two clubs, I mean, you're dealing with SMEs, I mean, often reliant on volunteers for a lot of their work. Some of the suggestions of what the independent regulator would do, needing to have compliance on diversity and inclusion policies and environmental policies. I mean, are these really burdens that you want to impose on Oldham Athletic and Forest Green Rovers and Hartlepool United? Seems to me quite extraordinary. This will be a costly measure, and I don't think it's one that's likely to swerve any of the problems that we've seen in football. And a good number of those problems have been solved by the market and self-regulation, killing the European Super League being the standout example. Kieran, we're almost out of time, but what powers would you actually like to see this regulator have? What would be enough, do you actually think, to bring the game back to health? Um, I think things such as real-time monitoring of the finances of clubs to make sure that they were, were not falling into the pit of overspending, um, a stronger owners and directors test to, to ensure that uh, you know, we, we have uh, we, we have regulation in American franchise sports with a general manager. I don't think it needs to be staffed necessarily by politicians and uh, and civil servants. I think people who who have an understanding, who are stakeholders in the game already, um, and and the ability of fans to have a say in terms of governance. Not, not the operational decisions, but there's been talk about shadow boards. There's been talk about um, golden shares to prevent the culture and the history of clubs being preserved because you grew up as a Chelsea fan or you grew up as a Hartlepool fan and, and you want that club and, and those, those values to be a representative forevermore. Mark, really briefly, that would surely be happy days for you, wouldn't it, if Southampton was to be, you know, in dire straits like some clubs are experiencing at the minute? Well, I mean, a few years ago, it was actually. We went all the way down to the third tier, started the season on minus 10 points. We're in administration for some particular uh, for quite a long while. It took us a long time to get back to the Premier League. But again, I'm not sure the regulator would have solved that. We already have financial fair play rules. You can argue that they should be imposed somewhat more strictly. I want clubs to be able to gamble to a considerable degree. One of the joys of football is that since the Premier League started, fully 50 out of the 92 current English league teams have been in the Premier League. That's the sort of churnover you want, the excitement of relegation and promotion. And in terms of what Kieran's seeking to achieve, I've got some sympathy with those ends. 
But I think it would be better for fans and, and commentators and others to put pressure on changing the way the football authorities, the Football Association, the Premier League and the English Football League actually conduct things like um, fit and proper person tests or financial fair play than building a, another layer of bureaucracy legislated for by this government. Well, look, this is a conversation that we could have all day, I'm sure. Thank you very much for the time of the two of you. Mark Littlewood, Director General at the Institute of Economic Affairs, and Kieran Maguire, football finance expert. Cheers for your time. Do we need to actually rethink the ethics behind football clubs? That's been the underlying theme, hasn't it, throughout this whole show. As far as ownership's concerned, should we try and eliminate dirty money from the game? Well, joining me now is Harry Harris, sports journalist and author of Red Cards to Racism, The Year of the Underdog England Next, and The Life and Times of El Tell. Now, Harry, has dirty money always been in the game? Why are we having this conversation now? Well, yes, um, dirty money has always been in the game. I've been uh, spending most of my lifetime, uh, professional lifetime, uh, uncovering it all. Uh, it's just um, taken different forms and uh, morphed into this uh, giant kind of um, generalisation about dirty money, which I, can't, I think at the moment now is totally misleading. I think, I think we all need to take a reality check because um, a lot of what's being said is totally unrealistic. Um, and uh, I think the political aspects of it, you know, the uh, chances of an independent regulator sounds all very well and good. But who would be on that independent regulator mm. and how would they regulate it? Would they have any teeth and would they actually make any difference? Would the fans be involved? It's unrealistic to expect any of that really to happen. I mean, you've poured through all the research on this stuff. You know more about this than I do, certainly. What sort of teeth do you reckon this regulator would actually need in order to have any material impact? Well, it needs to be proper legislation. It needs to have teeth. We've seen many reviews down the years. I have um, uh, numerous ones where they've made recommendations very similar to what you're hearing now, but without any teeth. With, uh, with, they've just been mothballed. Uh, and I, I, I think that the momentum here uh, about changes in the game, the morality of the game will end up being mothballed as well. You know, un unless there's real um, uh, direction, real motivation from the government, of course there isn't, because the government, let's be honest, and, and the um, Labour Party are clueless uh, about the realities of, of actually running football. Football's run by these mega wealthy people, most of them outside of this country. You talk, well, I heard this about exploitation because we're talking about Russians and Saudi Arabia, but you ask a Manchester United fan over the last 20 years whether there's been exploitation from the States with the Glazers. Now, it is a highly leveraged deal. What was wrong with that? But, you know, Tens of millions pour out of Manchester United every single year in repayments. The Glazers take an awful lot of money out of the football club. Um, that negates their ability to buy bigger players, better players, and, and to succeed. But under the Glazers, you wouldn't say they haven't succeeded. They're not succeeding yeah. now. So you really need a reality check, I'm afraid. Absolutely. I mean, to, to put the sort of cherry on the cake then, do you reckon Russia are going to get the Euros for 2028 or 2032? That would be the piece de resistance, wouldn't it? Well, the, the, the fact that they've applied um, just shows you the mess that the game is from uh, FIFA, UEFA, all the way down to the Football Association here. You, you headed this up about the morality of the game. Now, when I first started, the FA were in charge of the morality of the game. And that's where it should be. They should set the tempo on, on the integrity and the morality of the game and take people to task. That changed with the outset of the Premier League. The Premier League now, after all these years, have become almighty powerful. It's run by the clubs. Football is now run by the shareholders of the Premier League, which are the clubs. The clubs are owned mostly overseas by these powerful entities. So they now run football. Where are the FA in this? Nowhere. So what is needed is an independent regulator. That is the right route to take now. But it's who is going to run it, how they're going to run it, and will they have any legislative teeth to run it? And then yeah. you could then, uh, through that legislation, bring supporters into the game. Because 
it, it's all window dressing. Let's let's make no pretense about it. If football clubs, and they have done many times in the past, we'll have representatives from the uh, supporters' trusts in they come. They, they put them down the end of the boardroom, take absolutely no notice of what they're saying. You know, they Harry, we're just coming to the end of the show there. The in a word, a is our beautiful game will. still beautiful in your view? Say again. Is our beautiful game still beautiful in your view? It hasn't been beautiful for an awful long time. You know, there's a lot of dirty money, a lot of grubby money in the game, but it's not necessarily all from where you're saying it's coming from. Yeah. You know, this, the, the problem really is there's an awful lot of owners that have come under the radar. Because Harry, I think that's it. I think you've got it in a nutshell there. Thank you very much for your time. We're at the end of the show there, sadly, but that was Harry Harris, sports journalist and author. To continue this discussion, we're going to ask the question, has the Chancellor done enough to help people in our cultural debate. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South and former Conservative MEP Lance Foreman. Now, to the both of you, do you think this budget provided enough support? I'll start with you, Matt. I think, do you know what, when you see the bills that people are getting, when you see the rise in prices at the petrol pumps, uh, I don't think you could possibly have done enough. I don't think it's possible to do enough. Uh, I don't think it's within the gift of government to overturn some of these price increases that we're seeing. Uh, and I think, you know what, there, there was a lot of support there. There's a lot of things that will make a serious difference to people, actually. I don't think people have actually realised how big a difference some of it will make, uh, whether that be the, the, the change in national in, insurance threshold is actually massive. It's going to put 330 quid in people's pockets. It's huge. And actually, the good thing about it is it's focused, it's targeted on the people who need it most. 70% of the population are going to be paying less in tax than they were at the beginning of that statement. Matt, the Telegraph have reported that Boris Johnson allegedly wanted uh, more help on energy bills and Rishi Sunak refused. Would you be disappointed to hear that? Darren, you and I know better than to believe everything we read <laughs> in the newspapers or see on the television. Particularly, you, you, I think the, the press will always have an angle on any, everything about somebody who wanted to spend more, somebody who wanted to spend less. This tax cut is the biggest cut to personal tax in a quarter of a century. It is a big deal. Would we like more? Is it going to save everybody from the harm and the pain that they're going to endure from these massive bills that are landing on our doorsteps? No, it isn't. But it's, it's, a, it's a good start and it's going to support people in helping them make ends meet. Lance, it was always going to be the case, wasn't it, that after two years, as I say, of switching the economy on and off like a light switch, that Rishi Sunak would have to be straight with the public about the state of our public finances and say to her, look, if you want these health and social care services, for example, you're going to have to pay for them. What's frustrating, Darren, um, not just about Rishi Sunak, but pretty much every chancellor, you know, for the last 20 years, is they tinker around at the edges. And we've got to a situation now after 20, 25 years of not grappling with some of the serious fundamental uh, problems that our country faces of the biggest cost of living crisis we've ever had. And to start knocking off 5p uh, on fuel per litre when people are going to be paying 1,000 £2,000 more per family for their energy, for their electricity, just isn't going to cut it. We need some fundamental long-term changes. We need to deal with energy. We need, you know, I'm not saying just frack, of course, um, but we need to frack. We need nuclear. We need a diverse energy policy where we, you know, all of those different forms of energy are competing to get on track as quickly as possible. We need a housing policy. We need to reform planning. You know, the biggest cost that every particularly young people have in their lives is paying off a mortgage or, you know, trying to get a mortgage or, or, or rent. We don't have enough homes in this country. You know, we need to deal with the cost of living. It is a massive problem. And energy and housing are the two biggest issues. And that's what that's what we need to focus on. Lance, you, of course, you defected from the Brexit party as a member of the European Parliament to the Conservatives and in part, I'm sure, played a role in bringing about Boris Johnson's 2019 majority, the biggest since Thatcher. Do you regret that decision? Look, I don't regret it. It was definitely the right move at the time. But I think that the government seemed to be missing the point of Brexit. What the British people were saying was that they weren't happy with the way things were being done. They wanted fundamental change. They wanted a take back control in their words. And they wanted things done differently. We need the private sector to flourish. You know, Rishi Sunak has put up 
corporation taxes. If businesses can't flourish, and particularly smaller businesses can't flourish, what hope is there for the economy? Why are we punishing them? Why are we punishing them now with increases in national insurance? You know, and the state, you know, the, the state thinks that it can solve everyone's problems. It's, you know, investing a hundred billion in HS2. You know, I'm a free marketer, but even if you're a Keynesian, you only invest in state-funded project, projects when there's high unemployment. And we don't have high unemployment at the moment. We're competing. You know, the state is competing with the private sector, and it shouldn't be. It should allow the private sector to be flourishing. That's what we need to be doing. Before I come back to Matt, Lance, I just want you to illustrate for me, because I've had conversations with you in the past about this. Just illustrate for me what the, the as an energy intensive industry, as you are, you need it to, to put out your products. How much is the increase in, in energy costs well, actually meaning yeah, that well, you're having to say, well, we're going to have fewer sales, we're going to have fewer jobs created, we're going to have, you name it, it's going to be tough. I, I, absolutely, Darren. Well, this sort of came to my attention last October when my own small business um, had an increase in electricity costs of £200,000 a year to £400,000 a year. That is absolutely massive. And we're just one small, you know, small business. And, you know, we've had to put our prices up. But some customers don't like the higher prices, which means we won't be able to make a profit, which means the government won't be able to raise any corporation tax. You know, and, and none of this needs to happen. It's our mad green energy policy that's doing this. And Boris says now we need to build, build more wind farms. It hasn't been windy for the last week. It doesn't matter whether you have one wind turbine or a million wind turbines. If the wind doesn't blow, you're not creating you know, energy. We need to have diversity. We need to be fracking. We need to be going to yeah. North Sea. Lance, to get a start I totally get you. Well. I hear what you're saying there. I want to put that to Matt. Matt, what do you say to your constituents, right, who are looking at Boris Johnson's plans to scrap planning permission and say, right, you can go hell for leather on these wind turbines? Those wind turbines aren't going to power people's gas boilers, are they? I think the solution, you know, all of our energy crisis, uh, all of our energy problems is the fact that we've, we've neglected infrastructure for such a long time. Actually, we should have, we should be living, nuclear has such a big role to play and we turned the taps off on it in recent years. We should actually be going full, full throttle. And I think the government's got that now. The government has got the idea that we need to start getting into nuclear, that we need to start, you know, this green agenda, everybody talks about net zero. Actually, we should be talking about energy security. We should be talking about how cheaper energy and the way that that comes about, not talking about just whether it's green, it's good. Actually, it's about what we're getting back in return for investing in these green energy projects. Yeah, exactly. But on that point then, and to go back to some of what Lance was saying, are the Tories really being bold enough, right? If you consider, and I imagine your post bag is pretty full, your emails are coming in thick and fast with constituents saying, Matt, I don't know how I'm going to do this, mate. I think, you know what, you're entirely right. The, the, the price increase that people are paying out on energy on is unbelievable, is unbearable. And actually, government doesn't have the answer. Government cannot, cannot possibly pay everybody's electricity bill. Uh, we've got to do what we can to help people. Um, but I just think, yeah, there is a limit. Actually, the other thing that's coming down the line, so we've had this pandemic, it's created a situation where we've got huge national debt. Uh, we were paying 13 and a half million people's wages. We spent 410 billion pounds in supporting people on that pandemic. It's left us with this huge national debt. Uh, the interest payments are projected at 83 billion pounds. You cannot get to a point where you're paying out more on interest than you're paying for schools, for defence. We need to, you know, control uh, control the bank balance, the national bank balance, and control that, get that debt down. At the same time, we need to help people in what is a massive crisis. So it's it's a balancing act. Um, I wish there was bit there was more help for people, but I think it's probably what we can do with what we've correct, got. Correct, though. Do you think your constituents will think that you've got that balance right? I think, do you know what they're seeing? These huge bills arriving on their on their doorsteps, and they know that it's terrible. Can government control what everybody's energy bill is? This is a global problem. It's a, you know, the world over this issue is occurring. And actually, the other thing that's coming down the line beyond this and beyond the Ukraine issue, we've got a big problem coming with food and drink supply chain, where people are going to be paying more for certain things that they're picking up off supermarket shelves. Ukraine and Russia, biggest, well, one of the biggest exporters of bread, well, of wheat, of fertilizer. This is the next hit in the cost of living crisis is food and drink and the cost on our shelves.
Indeed, this debate will rattle on and on and on. Thank you very much, Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South and former Conservative MEP Lance Foreman. Now, let's continue our breakdown of the spring statement. I'm absolutely delighted to say I'm joined by Kate Andrews, economics editor at The Spectator magazine. Kate, can I start by asking you if you consider that the Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts were something like, I think, 6%, and they've now been slashed to 3.8% this year of economic growth. You can understand, surely, can't you, why the Chancellor is saying to his party, look, folks, this is the state we're in after turning the economy on and off like a light switch for two years. If you want tax cuts, if you want greater expenditure on things like defence, post, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you're going to have to find a way of paying for it. Thanks for having me, Darren. I, I think that uh, slash to the growth forecast is perhaps one of the biggest stories, long-term stories anyway, to come out of this budget. Uh, because the truth is, if you want to bring more revenue in for all the things you just listed, more public spending, more defense spending, the rest of it for tax cuts, if you want to actually fund your tax cuts, then you have to figure out a way to get more revenue in. And, and the best and healthiest way to do that for any economy or society is to go for growth. Uh, now, look, 3.8 percent growth in normal times would be fantastic. But remember, this was supposed to be the, the COVID comeback financial year. We were supposed to be seeing spectacular growth. So for it to be cut from 6% to 3.8% when this is the year we really want a recovery is very disappointing indeed. And the Treasury can facilitate a, a lot of the necessary conditions to go for economic growth. But the truth is, if you don't have the health department, the leveling up department, the business department, and at the helm, number 10, bringing in pro-growth policies, there's only so much the chancellor can do. Uh, and, you know, it was a pretty grim set of forecasts that the OBR laid out, not just for growth, but also for people's personal disposable income, uh, for the tax burden, which is going to be going up to a 77-year high in the next few years. Um, really difficult times. But you have to you have to account for where the money's going to come from, because uh, we have just uh, borrowed like uh, drunken Keynesians for a good solid two years, and now we have to account for that money. Well, exactly, Kate. It's the case, isn't it, that the Tories have basically thrown a massive party during the lockdown strategy, and now the nation is suffering a collective economic hangover. So I think you can certainly make the case that many of the really expensive schemes, the furlough scheme in particular, has proven itself successful. Unemployment a few years back was expected to peak above 12%. We were looking at chronic, painful unemployment, and it peaked just above 5%, and is now back down to its pre-pandemic levels. That is a success of the furlough scheme, but it cost tens and tens of billions of dollars, uh, sorry, pounds. Uh, so you you know you have to you have to keep that in mind, and I think perhaps. Perhaps where conservative politicians have gone wrong, uh, and I think the prime minister and even possibly the chancellor are somewhat included in this, is that they acted as if the protection that was given during the COVID years wasn't going to have any kind of economic impact, as if there wasn't going to be a consequence to that. And as you say, Darren, we've been turning a, the world economy on and off and on and off again for two years. It's created serious supply chain crunches, labor shortages. Now, in addition to that, we have these economic sanctions against Russia. These are all the consequences of decisions we've made. And I think you can argue simultaneously that at the time, many of them were the right decisions, but it doesn't mean there isn't a cost to bear from them. We are now paying that cost. But unfortunately, a lot of the public, and you know, the Labour Party is now using this to their advantage, certainly, thinks that the government can shield them from every economic pain. And it simply can't, especially not now. The government does not set global energy prices. They can do what they can to shield people, especially those at the bottom. But at some point, there's going to be a pain attached to these figures. And, and that's what you saw out of the OBR's forecasts in the spring statement, is that for the next 12 to 18 months, this is actually going to be a very difficult time for the country. So, Kate, what do you say to the Liberal Democrats and indeed the Labour Party who are saying, well, look, Kate, you've got these energy companies that have made vast profits over recent times. Isn't it right that we have a one-off windfall tax on these big companies and then spend that money shielding the very poorest, the least well-off from these rises in air energy bills? 
Windfall taxes are hugely damaging for many reasons. Um, I think that there's an ethical problem with them. They basically imply that the assets, the money that a company or an individual has doesn't really belong to them, that the state can come along at any time and it decides it needs more cash and just take it from you. Uh, that's a very dangerous principle. And countries around the world that have implemented wealth taxes find that they don't actually raise the money because economic behavior changes far less, comes in than they expected, and they've brought in this terrible principle. So many European countries that have tried wealth taxes and windfall taxes have actually rolled them back. Second of all, when it comes to energy companies in particular, if you are still committed to that net zero agenda and you want to see a greener planet, you want these energy companies investing in green energy. You don't want to be taking their profits. You want them to be redistributing them within the company to move towards green energy. And you know, I, I know a lot of people won't like this, but it is a lot of those big oil and gas companies that are also putting a huge amount of money into greener technology. I don't think we want to uh, create sentence against that. And the last thing I would say is that the Labour Party is estimating that a one-off wealth tax could bring in between a billion and three billion pounds. Now, look, that's no small chunk of change. But in, in the age of COVID, it is genuinely a drop in the ocean. To put this in perspective, uh, the money that we're paying just to service the debt, just to pay the interest of what we've already borrowed, is going to be 83 billion pounds this year. You compare that to the 1 billion or 3 billion pounds, well, you've, you know, put a chunk of change towards servicing the debt. But the Labour Party is starting to act a little bit like the Jeremy Corbyn era, where they would say things like hiking corporation tax is going to pay for countless services that we want. And now it's this windfall tax. You know, it's going to cover the bills of the poor. It's going to shield the poor. Unfortunately, it's not. Even if you were to bring it in, and I think it'd be very damaging for all the reasons I listed, that amount of money is still not going to go anywhere near far enough to actually shield people uh, from these rising costs. So I think um, overall, uh, it would be a flop, and it would be one that comes with a set of uh, ethical dilemmas that I don't want to go near. Kate, before I ask you about the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Liz Truss wanting tax cuts, reportedly, of course, before I find out your view on that, on them being potentially irresponsible fiscal conservatives, I'm just going to go to a very quick news break and then we'll be right back with you because I'm having such an amazing time. You are so common sense, Kate, that it hurts. It really, really is true. Quick news break and then we'll be back with Kate Andrews, economics editor at The Spectator. Welcome back to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. I'm delighted to say I'm still joined by Kate Andrews, economics editor at The Spectator magazine. Thank you very much for hanging on there, Kate. Now, Kate, if we're to believe reports that the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Liz Truss want tax cuts to tackle the cost of living crisis, the Coffee House Shots podcast, of course, informs us on lots of this. Do you actually view them as being irresponsible fiscal conservatives if they are advocating such a thing? I desperately want tax cuts. I think there's broad cabinet agreement that tax cuts would be nice. Uh, I think you can look at the spring statement and say the chancellor really wants tax cuts. I took the pledge to cut the basic rate of income tax uh, by a P uh, by 2024 to be actually an indication to his own party that if you stop asking me for so much money, if you stop asking me to spend lots more, then I can deliver this tax cut for you in a few years' time. Uh, so I think that was just as much a message to the Tory party as it was uh, to the public. So I think there's a, a broad consensus that tax cuts would be nice. The question is the timing and what you think you're going to get for them. Uh, and if you think that tax cuts are on automatically going to lead to more revenue, automatically lead to more economic growth. And by the way, I think certain tax cuts, especially um, around corporation tax, uh, would be would be fantastic. Um, but the problem is that you have these calls for tax cuts at the same time when the prime minister in particular has wanted more and more spending. I'm thinking particularly of uh, that new plan to fund social care, which basically doesn't add a single bed uh, to the social care system. It just protects the assets of the rich and makes lower paid workers cover them. Um, if you're going to have those kinds of, of spending calls at the same time that you want to cut taxes, you just have to acknowledge that at some point this isn't sustainable and it, it's very hard to do at the same time. 
So I think it's really a question of priorities and timing. Um, you know, free marketeers, generally speaking, want tax cuts, and I, I think the chancellor really does too. It's just, of course, he's the one who, at the end of the day, has to not balance the books, but try to think about a time in even the medium term where maybe they could look slightly more balanced. Uh, and that means trade-offs. Um, you know, as I was saying before, coming out of the age of COVID, the really difficult conversation to have with the public is you can't have everything. Yeah, indeed. And I wonder then on that, on the con in the context of the health and social care tax rises, of course, as you well know, Kate, these hypothecated taxes that people say, you know, they're ring fenced. We can't spend it on anything other than health and social care or national insurance. Of course, we were all told, sold a blatant lie that it was unique to paying for pensions and things like that. Do you actually think any future leadership contender to the Conservative Party. Of course, it seems like a million years ago now, but it wasn't that long ago that we thought Partygate might actually topple the current incumbent of number 10. How else do you think Tory leadership contenders might actually go about plugging that funding gap that is there as far as health and social care is concerned? Would you like to see a more insurance-based approach? Well, I would certainly like to see major reform to the National Health Service. It's not sustainable. I think in the next three or four years, 44% uh, of day-to-day -day government spending is going to be on health care. So you really are getting very close to an NHS with a government attached to it. Uh, of course, I look to uh, other European countries which offer universal access to health care but have very different ways of going about paying for it. So ideally, it, it doesn't break the government's bank. Um, these are still politically impossible conversations, it seems to have. Um, this Tory government has decided that it only wants to pour more money into the NHS. Um, you know, I'm not convinced that this hypothecated tax is going to work, but I know those uh, who are more supportive of the idea, and I think this is quite optimistic, but interesting, think that by creating this new levy, it will link in people's minds the idea that more money for health and social care means a tax rise, that this money for the NHS and social care doesn't grow on trees, it doesn't come out of nowhere magically. If you want more money for these things, you have to raise that levy. Um, but I'm not, I'm not at all convinced that that will link up in people minds right away. Uh, moreover, of course, Rishi Sunak has raised the national insurance thresholds by nearly £3,000. And this is very good because it's taking the lowest paid out of, it's going to most benefit the lowest paid to, to help relieve the tax burden on them. But I think that already goes to show that this isn't a hypothecated tax because we've taken people out of the bracket who would be paying more NI. Uh, and yet we're still going to spend the same amount of money on the NHS and social care. So that just goes to show, you know, these things are not directly linked. The government will spend as much money as it wants on health and social care. But I do have sympathy with the idea of trying to tie up in people's minds that connection between your taxes and the NHS, because I think for a long time now, no thanks to the Tory government, which has been piling billions in, really since 2017, I think it was, Theresa May decided to give the NHS a 70th birthday present. Um, you know, this is this has just been uh, unlimited funds going into a system that remains unreformed. Um, it's not sustainable, but until people want to talk about that there's very there's very little that can change indeed case and i think that conversation is quickly coming into focus because let's be honest it's not going to get any better any time soon but kate andrews fantastic analysis there thank you very much economics editor at the brilliant spectator magazine now on this segment of course we take something and put it through its paces and decide whether or not we should scrap reform or keep it and today, I'm delighted to say, we're discussing North Sea oil and gas production. Joining me now is Neil Rothney, a retired offshore oil and gas worker who is speaking to us from Glasgow this afternoon. Hey, Neil, I tell you what, being a proponent of North Sea oil and gas in Glasgow at the minute mustn't make you very popular. Being an opponent of it? Well, I think that most people in Glasgow are very, very aware of the climate crisis. They may not be up to date with every single uh, statistic, but they, they know that the days of oil and gas are, are long gone. And, and just to be, you know, to be clear about this, Just Stop Oil are, are making the demand that, that there is no new oil and gas licenses, that we don't develop any more oil and gas. Yeah. The, the, uh, government, the government are actually saying, though, Neil, aren't they, that they the plans to increase oil and gas production, especially utilising our own domestic sources, 
are actually uh, about bringing down these spiralling power prices. Now, I've been to Glasgow many times, Neil, and I know for a fact it's not a place that's, you know, awash with wealth. Wouldn't this help struggling Glaswegians? Oh, on the contrary. I mean, we've had, we've had in the last few months, we've had a, a, an enormous rise in domestic fuel bills, and they're due to go much higher. Um, this is nothing to do with uh, increased production costs in the North Sea. This is pure profit taking by an industry which has got absolutely no concern for either the workers in the industry or for the, for the consumers of the product. Well, hang on, though. These, these are companies would turn around and they would say, look, the likes of BP, the likes of Shell, you name it, they're all saying we're investing in the future of the energy market, which is more renewable, net-focused energy sources. The, the real situation that exists just now is that if we continue to produce hydrocarbons the way we're doing it, the, the climate crisis is going to develop past a point where we can actually live on the planet. So whatever the government are saying, whatever, the, whatever green spin the oil companies are putting on this, it's very, very clear to people like the, the uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change. I mean, this, these are not radicals. These are, you know, government sanctioned scientists. It's very clear to them that if you do not begin to stop producing fossil fuels now, then it's going to be too late for, for the future of most people on the planet. Here, you know, in Scotland or in, in the UK, the, the, the main source of, of the fossil fuel uh, pollution is the North Sea. And that North Sea has got to be curtailed. It's got to be stopped. There's the, the prices that we're paying, the hugely inflated, inflated prices that a million new people are going to be driven into poverty through. That's according to Martin yeah, Lewis. Neil, I'll tell you what, though. I'll tell you what. I think there are communities up and down this country that know a thing or two about poverty. And actually, energy insecurity in this country is a great source of that poverty. Exactly. But the, the insecurity That's has been driven by North Sea oil. It's expensive. About it's expensive. And the prices are being driven up by speculation. There's been no increase in production no, costs for North Sea oil. Because people like you keep campaigning against energy sources that we know work. We need to use gas, for example, as a transition to get to the kind of country that I assume you and I want to see. I'm afraid to say, Neil, that I think you're living in a sort of Panglossian fancy land here where we've got a land of milk and honey coming down the track when actually people are struggling right now and the only way we can plug that gap is through gas. No, the exact opposite is the case. The, the, the gas that people are forced to buy, the gas that's pumped into their homes, is hugely inflated in price. This is... Renewable energy is cheaper than gas. It's quicker to bring on stream, and it's cheaper. I mean, you, if you, you can argue with me, but you, read, you really need to argue with the, the International Energy Agency. I mean, they're, they're saying, look, if governments are serious about climate crisis, there can be no new investments in oil and gas or coal from now on. That's unequivocal. It's not me saying it. It's not just stop oil saying it. It's the, the International Energy Agency. So, Neil, I'm assuming then, as far as scrap reform keeps concerned, you are saying a resounding scrap to oil, North Sea oil and gas. To be replaced by a, a massive expansion of renewables. To be replaced and, I and to be... I say I disagree and I actually think that, one, it's a great source of economic opportunity for people in Scotland, and two, it would ensure that households that are really hard-pressed right now actually are able to keep heating their homes. But, Neil, thank well, you very much. You haven't said anything convinced me that you know what oil and gas worker there with his view. Now, to finish this hour, let's have a campus clash. While William and Kate have been on their Royal Caribbean tour, Jamaica have been calling for Britain to pay for reparations for our colonial past, sparking debate and much controversy. So do you think Britain should pay reparations for our colonial past? I certainly know what I think. My next guest, Sandro Monetti, thinks that the awards ceremony needs a complete overhaul. 
Now, this comes as the Academy is set, as I said earlier, to disqualify movies that don't have enough black, gay and disabled actors by 2024. Come on, the Oscars are just a sinking ship here, aren't they? What actually needs to be changed to make them more appealing to the general public? Sandro, fill me in, editor-in-chief of Hollywood International Filmmaker magazine. Fill me in, what would you do? Were I to be, were it to be in my gift to say, right, I'm putting you in charge, what would be the first thing that you would do, Sandro? Well, firstly, I would congratulate you on an excellent decision. Uh, and it is time for change because the Oscars are facing something of an existential crisis. Uh, the ratings have gone off a cliff. The membership is in open revolt about various changes. Um, but the real problem is after 94 years of Oscar, are they really going to make it to 100 without a uh, big change? And it's the connection that has been lost uh, between movie insiders and voters and the general public. Because it used to be, up until 20 years ago, that popular films were nominated for Oscars. Things like uh, Raiders of the Last Ark, E.T., Rocky. These kind of things were always at the Oscars. But ever since uh, the last Lord of the Rings film, about 20 years ago, uh, it has been much more sort of independent, lesser seen movies. Uh, the Academy seems seems to think that popularity is a dirty word. And so I think the main change needs to be that just because something is popular with the public doesn't mean it doesn't have artistic merit. It's got to be a change of mindset. Right, I see. Yes, that, that, I mean, that's very interesting, Sandro. But basically, if you want to go far in the film industry now, if you want to actually be part of a, an award-winning production, you've got to be a black, trans, homosexual, or is it pans, gender, I don't know, whatever sort of woke, trendy, new gender or sexuality there is out there at the moment, you didn't stand a chance if you're cisgender, straight and, uh, and white, basically, do you? You know, diversity isn't just Hollywood's problem, it's society's problem, but uh, Hollywood has a big influence um, on, uh, on popular culture and culture around the world. And for many years, it's just been lip service, but now Hollywood is actually putting it in the rules. So these new rules will come into effect in 2024. It's an admirable effort, but how it's going to work, we will we will see. Yes, the rules are um, that uh, one of the leading uh, actors in the movie must be from an underrepresented group. There also must be similar changes uh, behind the camera as well with directors, producers, these significant roles. Um, but it, it's interesting that Hollywood has already sort of taken effect because uh, most of this year's Best Picture nominees would already uh, qualify. Uh, so, so yes, uh, uh, but the Academy had a real problem to address here because back in 2015, I remember pointing, uh, reporting that um, there were uh, all 20 acting nominees were white. And, and that really made the Academy um, start to try and change the numbers in an effect to change the industry. Um, and admirably, um, over the last five years, they have uh, doubled uh, the membership among women and people of colour, um, and they're not stopping there. So it is a radical overhaul. Um, but whether they can uh, overhaul the Oscars to actually bring the viewers with them is, I would suggest, a bigger challenge because ratings were 10 million last year, all-time low. Yeah, I mean, Sandra, though, I think a lot of people watching will be saying, I think what you've just said is very laudable and I respect the aims and objectives of the award ceremonies to try and bring more people on board and, and give them a chance to win awards and things like that. But is there not an element of, will, will black people, will gay people, will, I don't know, transgender people not be watching themselves receive these awards and thinking and wondering... Have I received this because of my immutable characteristics? Aren't we at risk here of, of making people feel that you, they're basically only there because of the fact that they have this identity box ticked? It's, it's interesting. People tend to watch the films and relate to the films and vote for the films uh, that they watch. Um, and you may have seen that in the nominations uh, this year, they're a lot more diverse. And I think that becomes uh, a result of uh, changing the, the membership. So, so uh, it, yeah, I mean, th this is... 
this is all about um, changing the, the the profile of the membership and then changing the awards as 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 well. Um, so yes, and the Academy Museum um, has recently opened, and that puts diversity very much at the forefront. So this is Hollywood's issue at the moment. Uh, Hollywood and the Oscars has always been um, uh, politically based, culturally aware. Um, you only need to look at uh, what Sean Penn has said in the last 24 hours. He thinks the Oscars should all be about Ukraine and Zelensky. And if uh, Zelensky is not introducing the Oscars, Sean Penn says he's going to come back to Hollywood and destroy his awards. So whatever is in the cultural conversation, the Oscars tends to be either the leader or the punching bag. Um, it, uh, it's, it's struggling to make friends. It's making a lot of enemies. It continues yeah, to be a I fascinating mean, Sandro, I imagine most people watching this are just thinking, look, I just want to hear about the films, right? I don't want to hear about the politics. But Sandro Manetti, I hope you have an absolutely fantastic night tonight. Editor-in-chief of Hollywood International Filmmaker magazine. Welcome back to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Thank you very much for your company. Now, Save the Children folks has turned down a 750,000 quid donation from Neptune Energy. The charity have said that it's changed its policy to stop taking donations from fossil fuel companies. Well, the children around the world must be totally safe, mustn't they? If they can turn round and say they don't want 750,000 pounds. How extraordinary. I'm joined by Dr Judith Anderson now, who is Chair of Climate Change Psychology Alliance. Judith, whilst they can say they care more about sustainable energy, some will say, actually, hang on a minute. What's more important right now is sustaining children's lives no less than the children of Ukraine. Well, I think this is a great discussion for Mother's Day, Darren. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me. Um, it's a very complicated question, and I think there are a number of things to think about. This is not just about sustainable energy. Uh, it's about the massive impact that climate change is having now on many populations in the world, particularly the poorest. Now, in Africa, for example, 40% of the whole population are 15 and under. Globally, it's 25%. So when we think about the impacts of heat, stress, floods, uh, drought, reduced food production, we're thinking about a lot of children being affected. <clears throat> so there are a number of questions. What is the causes? What are the causes of climate change? And we know that they're predominantly fossil fuel consumption and fossil fuel consumption historically from the wealthier countries, including our own. Did the fossil fuel companies know about climate change? They did. They had some great scientists who in the 80s predicted the temperature rises um, that we're seeing now and yeah. the overall effect. Judith, I hear and what you're saying. Yeah. But people throughout, for a long time now, have been making similar projections. I mean, there were projections made in the 60s, for example. And now, of course, we found that there haven't been the massive changes that world ending, indeed, that they said would be well, brought about. Well, where are you getting your information from, Darren? I've been looking today at the IPCC impact assessment report, which was published in February this year, which was signed off by every country in the whole world. And that is looking at increasing risks to young people. Well, it's looking at risks for all of us, but it's particularly, there's a particular chapter focusing on risk. And we also have to think about the way that fossil fuel companies have very sadly, not all of them, but some, have funded climate change denial which has led to a delay in us acting. Well, Judith, I regretfully say so, that I have never been funded by fossil fuel companies, but if anyone to get in touch, I'll give them my sort code and account number. But Judith, look, I actually believe that what you are advocating here, as far as getting rid of fossil fuels altogether, surely children around the globe, some of the most deprived countries around the world are going to be left cold and they're going to be left hungry because of the policies that you're advocating. That's that's a misinterpretation of what I've said, Darren. Well, how? Is Absolute it? misinterpretation of what I've said. I think 
our own Climate Change Committee has given very clear guidance to the government of how we could reduce our use of fossil fuels much faster, and the government hasn't acted. Fossil fuel companies are in an extraordinarily difficult position because they're beholden, of course, to their shareholders, and they're not getting the benefits of tax breaks on renewables. They're getting still getting the tax breaks on their extraction of fossil fuels. So in a way, they're as much a victim of our own denial as they are. But <clears throat> what I'm talking about is that this is a massive problem for children. And let me tell you, children all over the world are very worried that governments are not taking them seriously. And let me tell um, you, Judith, the, the reason why working class communities like that one that I'm from, the reason why we get beyond child age now is because we're not dying. And thanks to the, the progress that largely fossil fuels have brought about. But we'll agree to disagree. Of Dr. course. Judith of Anderson, course, of Chair course. of Climate Change Psychology Alliance, thank you very much for your time. You're with GB News on TV and DAB Radio. Welcome back to Real Britain with me, Darren Grimes. Cheers very much for your company. Now, Lord Grade, the TV executive, businessman and former BBC chairman, has been chosen as the new chairman of UK media regulator Ofcom. So today in our Back to Basics virtual classroom, we're going to explore what the Ofcom chairman actually does. I'm joined by no one better to clear up this from us than Martin Campbell. He is a media advisor at Media Objectives and former chief advisor to Ofcom. Now, first of all, can I just ask, could you explain, shine some light on, on what Ofcom is ultimately and what their, their, some of their rules are? Yeah, hi, Darren. Um, yes, Ofcom... Uh, was set up a few years back, really, it, as a very sort of Blairite uh, organisation. And it was set up to be a communications regulator and uh, effectively competitions authority for um, television and radio, for uh, communications as landlines, broadband speed, that sort of stuff. And uh, was also given um, the postal service to uh, look after as well. So it's actually quite a wide ranging um, remit that they have, but the uh, the emphasis is always on uh, broadcasting for, <laughs> for for obvious reasons, and uh, and of course the Michael Grade uh, situation has uh, has highlighted this. Why do you think the Tories have gone with Michael Grade? Why, of course, there is a real pushback, isn't there, against some of, as you rightly say, some of these regulators set up by Tony Blair. A lot of Conservatives are saying, well, hang on a minute, I think we should roll back some of these regulatory state-like issues. Do you think they've gone with Lord Grade because they think Lord Grade is, is a man for them? Yes. I mean, you, what, what you've, you've, you've got to go back, actually, uh, to have a look at um, when David Cameron was uh, elected as, as prime minister. One of the, the, the things he said was, one of the first things I will do is to have a bonfire of quangos and I shall put Ofcom on the top of that bonfire. Well, you know, it was only a matter of weeks before there was a big media storm, which I think was probably the, uh, the, the Murdoch. Uh, the phone hacking. Uh, and so, you know, all of a sudden it was hauled off the bonfire of quangos because the government desperately need something between them and broadcasting because otherwise they, they can find themselves being very unpopular. The difficulty that uh, has happened over the years really uh, began as much with Theresa May as anybody else when she stood up in Parliament and said, I have instructed Ofcom to find reasons to close down Russia today. Okay, now without without going into the, the, the moral aspect of that, the fact of the matter is Ofcom is not an arm of the government. It's supposedly independent. Uh, it's a creature of statute, but it's supposedly independent of the, of the government. And that brought it uncomfortably close to the government. And once again, with, with RT and Liz Truss, that's brought it very close to the government again. So, you know, as, as the years go by, it's looking more and more like a, a, a tool of the government. So I'm not entirely surprised um, at, at Lord Grade's uh, announcement, although it's caused quite a fuss. But I, did, I mean, they did want Paul Dacre from the Mail. They did want Charles Moore from the Telegraph. Well, indeed. Um, but they were booted out by selection committees, yeah. 
Yeah, so earlier this year, Grade was warning that the BBC's 159 quid licence fee was too much money and suggesting that the corporation should uh, close channels maybe to cut their costs. Will he be allowed to make such statements as the chairman of Ofcom? The, yeah, the different chairmen that Ofcom have had have behaved in lots of different ways, Darren. So, so most of them, actually, from uh, Lord Curry, who was the first chairman, have been quite quiet. And uh, and he cut a more sort of avuncular figure than, than anything else and at meetings. Oh, he's a very high-powered, very clever man. But, uh, you know, he didn't court the media. Um, with Michael Grade, of course, he's inextricably linked with, uh, with, with the media. So I suspect if he does get the job, and he still is to see the DCMS committee next week, who could in theory stop the appointment, but I very much doubt if they will, um, that they could stop it. But it, it's, it's caused the industry a, a, a little bit of a problem because Lord Grade's views are quite well known. Um, I, I agree with most of them. I, I mean, I think that the, the BBC wastes money like Topsy and, um, and and should be actually sort of blown I mean, up and stuff. Martin, though, I bet, yeah, three-day-a-week job, right, with a hefty salary of around 142,000 quid. I wouldn't mind the job myself, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, but you see, have you got the experience? Now, the interesting thing about Michael Grade is that he's 79, and uh, I, I think he's he's headed BBC ITV four and five. Yes, he's been around. He's been but, around, Martin. I think that's safe but, to say. Me, Martin Campbell, there. Thank you very much for your time. That's Martin Campbell, media advisor at Media Objectives and former chief advisor to Ofcom. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.